Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest today is Nicole Pottinger, a third-year law student at the University of Kentucky College of Law and a summer intern at the United States Copyright Office. And today we're going to be talking about her experiences at the Copyright Law Office, a little bit about how copyright law works, and then we're also going to discuss the article that Nicole and I recently co-authored, Registration is Fundamental. So welcome, Nicole, to WRFL and to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to have you here. So I was wondering if you could start off just describing what the Copyright Office is like. You know, you spent some time working there in D.C. over the summertime. It's like, you know, where is it? What does it look like? What do people do there? Well, it's not the gorgeous building that you go tour when you visit D.C. It's actually right next door. It is made of marble and doesn't have very many windows, but... The people working inside make the best of it. There are a lot more departments than you would think, so there's not only the legal stuff that happens, but there's also the registration offices, there's policy offices. It's actually four or five floors, and a lot of people work there every single day. Very cool, right? So it's it's in D.C. in one of the two Library of Congress buildings there, the the more modern and arguably less attractive. The Madison Building. The Madison Building, right? But there's a couple cool features about the Copyright Office, right? Like one of the things that I saw when I went there was the the filing uh, the filing cabinet rooms, actually. The, can you say a little something about that? Uh, yeah, there's a lot of different offices on the floors where everything is stored. So every time someone sends in a registration, they also have to include a copy of their work. So there's a lot of really weird and really cool stuff just in the offices. Uh, every single day, walking down the hallway, there were like cutouts that you'd get from a movie theater that mm. just stuck in the windows, and everyone just has a great sense of creativity everywhere. So they really make the most of their space. Yeah, right. It's a really creativity from all around the United States and, mm-hmm. and all around the world flowing into the Copyright Office as people want to register their works uh, and claim copyright protection. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what you did while you were there. What kind of stuff did they ask you to do while you were working at the Copyright Office? Well, I worked in the Office of the General Counsel, so there were a few different places where interns could be. I did a lot of different things all pertaining directly to copyright law. So I wrote a few memos on the First Amendment and um, just what is copyright generally. I drafted a few PowerPoints and worked on a few legislative policy issues that the Copyright Office was preparing a report for to present in front of Congress, which was interesting. Um, I also wrote a review board letter that was obviously um, reviewed by an attorney later, (laughs) but I drafted one and also was able to go to a presentation where the Copyright Office or one of the attorneys gave an update. It was like a CLE presentation for um, continuous learning. Very cool. So I think one of the things that might be really helpful for our listeners is maybe like a brief explanation of how copyright works. In other words, how do you get a copyright in the first place and what role 
does the Copyright Office play in copyright ownership and copyright litigation, for that matter? So copyright kind of exists as you make something. So the second you record something or write a book or even like a text message, you have copyright just from nature. But in order to prove that, a lot of people will register with the Copyright Office. So you send in a registration, you can do it paper or online. The Copyright Office is in the process of modernizing their system. I sat in on a presentation over the summer of what the beta for that looks like, and it is a thousand times better than it used to be. It's a really gorgeous, user-friendly system, and they're actually soliciting people to start working in that beta system. So if you're an artist, you should definitely try to register using that system. But once you send that in, the a registration specialist will look at it to make sure it meets all of the requirements for copyright. So it has to be original, it has to be creative, and it has to be yours. From there, they'll send you a certificate and you will have that to prove to the world that you own this thing, no matter what it is. So if it's a work of art, music, book, no matter what. Interesting. So in order to get a copyright, you don't have to do anything but create a work of authorship. Then. But in order to prove that you own the copyright in a work of authorship, you might want to register it with the Copyright Office? Yeah, it'll be a lot easier to prove that if anyone infringes your copyright. So if anyone copies what you've done and tries to sell it as their own, and you want them to stop, if you want to take them to court, it's going to be a thousand times easier to prove that you owned that work if you have the registration certificate than if you didn't. Okay, interesting. And is it relatively easy or inexpensive or is it hard and expensive to register a work? It's relatively easy and I'd say relatively inexpensive. It depends on a few factors, mostly whether or not the Copyright Office thinks that this is a work of original creative authorship. The first time around there's a really long process that has been established that if you if they reject your work of authorship, you have a chance to appeal that decision, and the more you appeal, the more expensive the process can get. But most works are granted authorship the okay, first Okay, so interesting. Maybe we could talk about that just a little bit, because I think, you know, as you said, you spent some time working on some of those issues, working with the review board and, and talking to examiners and so on. So if, if someone submits a work for copyright registration, say I wrote a novel and I submitted it for copyright registration, do you think the Copyright Office would be likely to register that? Almost definitely. Okay, okay. And what if I, like, wrote a, a new song and I sent that in for, for copyright registration? Would, would they register that? Most likely. Okay, so what, what kinds of things wouldn't the Copyright Office register? Um, my favorite thing that they did not register was a tequila bottle. So you, it was shaped like a skull, and that is not eligible for copyright registration. Okay, well, why not? Well, why was that tequila bottle shaped like a skull not registered for, for copyright protection by the Copyright Office? In other words, what was the basis for the denial? Well, it looked like something that existed in the world, so it, wasn't, it didn't ha meet that originality benchmark that's required. 
Okay, so uh, of all the works that are submitted for copyright registration, like, do you have a sense of like what percentage are registered as opposed to what percentage are refused registration? The vast majority are registered. So it's just a very small percentage that are that do not meet the requirements and then are later appealed. Okay, okay. So only a, a tiny fraction of works that don't have that kind of spark of originality, mm -hmm. that kind of really minimal level of originality uh, that the, the Copyright Office expects are going to be registered then. So most authors or songwriters or artists who create works of authorship, they could submit those for copyright registration and it'd be no problem? Absolutely. Okay, okay, interesting. So maybe we can move on then to talk a little bit about the paper that we wrote together, Registration is is Fundamental. Maybe, could, could you just tell our listeners a little bit about what the paper's about? Sure. So there's this uh, court case that was granted certiorari to the Supreme Court of the United States for this coming summer. It is Fourth, Estri Fourth Estate versus WallStreet.com. So Fourth Estate makes content for newspapers, like online newspapers. They had a license with Wall Street to, for Wall Street to put up this content and the license agreement was severed. Then Wall Street continued to keep the newspaper articles on their website. Fourth Estate said, hey, you need to take these down, this is our content, and WallStreet.com did not. Uh, the Fourth Estate did register or attempt to register their articles. The registration has not yet been granted, mostly because it does take like seven to nine months on average to get your registration certificate. But Fourth Estate is arguing that you do not have to register with the Copyright Office before you instigate litigation. Okay, why would that be a problem? Why do they have to argue that? Because the Copyright Act of 1976 says registration is required, but the way it's written can is slightly ambiguous, <laughs> I guess, is the best way to put that. It's not clear whether or not you have to wait to until the registrar decides that copyright has been granted or not before you can sue. So you can sue after you either get your certificate or don't, but you have to at least attempt to register. Right, right. So the question then is whether Fourth Estate has to wait for the Copyright Office to make a decision on its registration application before it can file a infringement action in in federal court then, if I'm understanding correctly. Yes, that's correct. Right, right. Okay, interesting. So what's WallStreet.com's response to that argument? They're saying that you have to wait for this decision to be made, so you can't bring this action against us at this time. Okay, right. So it seems to me that, you know, on its on its face, the the argument before the Supreme Court is mostly about the language of the statute. Right, it's a statutory interpretation question. question. It's a question is like, what does the statute act actually require? So, mm -hmm. so Fourth Estate is arguing that the language is amb 
ambiguous. Why do they? Why are they arguing that the language is ambiguous? Do you think? Where do they go from there? I think if they say that it is not ambiguous, then having to wait seven to nine months or however long it takes for the office to get to you, the other party will be able to infringe your work and gain a monetary benefit from that work. And by in, by filing your lawsuit now before you get that registration, it will help protect the party from loss. Right. So in a sense, Fourth Estate is saying then that it's, it's kind of unfair mm-hmm. that they yeah. have to wait so long, right? right. That this, that the WallStreet.com's interpretation of the language of the Copyright Act would mean that, you know, they might have to wait quite some time mm-hmm. before they're, they're able to file their infringement action. Right. And that seems like, well, you know, why should someone be able to infringe our work for seven to nine months while the Copyright Office is reviewing whether or not we satisfied the registration requirements. Mm-hmm. And, and what do you think? I mean, what's the likelihood that Fourth Estate's works are registrable? I mean, they most certainly are. They're newspaper articles. They're original and creative. So it, they'll be granted. There's no question. Right. right? Is, is there a way that, that Fourth Estate could, could speed up review of the works in question? They could. There is a special process that is granted in very limited circumstances, and this may very well be one of the limited circumstances where you can speed up registration for, I think it's five days, but it's pretty pricey, and not all potential plaintiffs will be able to afford that price. Okay, so there's some question as to whether or not they can get that kind of expedited review mm-hmm. that they would need in order to sue more quickly right. for for infringement. Well, could... Could Fourth Estate have registered the works in advance? Uh, they could have. It's just, do you really want to register every single newspaper article that you are producing every day? So if you are a newspaper that has 30 articles every single day, that can get pretty pricey to register every single one. Now, there is group registration as an option, but legal like the legal fees and just the file the cost of registering can get pretty expensive okay so what would happen if fourth estate wins if they win it will make it it'll be problematic just a little bit i think because we want to incentivize registration because moving forward the copyright office has all of the skill and knowledge in registering things so if someone makes a work of art and they try to register it and then immediately sues someone else then the court is going to have to decide whether or not the plaintiff has copyright in the work of art and Historically, works of art have been, it's been harder to determine whether or not something has all of the registration requirements. So it will put a higher burden on the court in determining whether or not something is copyright when the Copyright Office is has 148 years of history in doing this and 
has a body of expertise, it has a thousand page like guideline manual on registration and how copyright law works. Yeah, I mean, it kind of seems to me like if I can file an infringement action and register the same day, right, mm-hmm. would there be any point in registering in advance? And Not the, necessarily. Yeah, no. would the Copyright Office still play any kind of role in reviewing the registrability of works? I mean, there would be a role, but it'd be highly diminished from what it is today. Right. Some people might still file right. in advance, but a lot of them would have an incentive to wait until somebody infringed. Could that be a problem for potential infringers as well? I mean, is there a notice element potentially there? Yeah, there's an online database you can search right now of all of the registrations. And if someone not was not intentionally infringing, but had the potential to infringe, they would not be on notice that someone had registered this specific work already. Right. So you talked a little bit earlier about review board letters. Can you talk about what those are and and when they're produced and sort of how we should think about them? So in order to understand the review board more fully, you have to understand the registration process. So let's say I am starting business and I create a logo, which is one of the traditionally more complex works of potentially creative authorship. So I send in this logo and the copyright office rejects it. They will send me a letter explaining why it was rejected. And I say, I need this logo to have copyright. It's like trademarks, not enough. I have to do this. So I appeal it. I will send them a legal memo or a letter saying, this is why I think I deserve copyright in this. And here are the reasons that you're wrong. Then they send me another letter back saying, hey, you're really wrong. You should not have copyright in this because your logo is made of normal shapes that are seen every single day and it hasn't met the creativity requirement. So at this point, I've already spent about $700 in appeal fees. I say, I have to do this. I'm sorry. I need it. So at this point, I have sent in two letters. The, I have received two letters back. The Copyright Review Board will now look at my appeal. So that entails most of the lawyers in the General Counsel's Office, as well as a few from other offices. They will sit in a meeting and go through your work piece by piece, say, what is, like, what are the pros of granting copyright and what are the cons? So that determination is made and an attorney will write a review board letter. So these letters are the work at issue, the procedural history, the legal framework behind the issue. So the logo will have a creativity originality component there may be a few other components thrown in and then there will be a legal analysis portion and these letters are now posted online they were available through the University of New Hampshire I believe posted a lot of them online through uh, Freedom of Information Act requests but now the Copyright Office has started publishing them on copyright.gov so 
every single one is available. I think there's like 85 or 90 now, maybe more. Um, but they're really informative because if you have something like a work that is maybe questionable, you don't know, you can go look at all of these letters. Now, they're not necessarily precedential, so they're not going to rely on the letters substantively moving forward with a request, but they do provide an interpretation of the compendium that explains how to evaluate a work, and they often bring in district court and higher court opinions based on works that are similar. So the review board kind of works symbiotically with a court in that the board will look at court's decisions and district courts often will cite to the review board letters and past decisions of the Copyright Office. Cool, cool. So so how often do federal district courts and federal circuit courts sort of ask questions about originality and copyrightability of works of authorship? Is this the kind of thing that they address frequently? It really isn't. Hmm. Yeah. It, I mean, it's happened a few times, but not enough to where they've built any sort of substantive body of critique of what copyright and originality is. So there's not a lot of like standards that have been met, have been established. Mm-hmm. Is it your impression that, that district courts find the Copyright Office Review Board letters helpful in making these kinds of determinations? I think so, mostly because the Copyright Office is kind of given a deference. They'll defer to whatever the office has said to a reasonable amount. Uh, There's one case where the district court had to evaluate a coffee mug, and they relied pretty heavily on the Copyright Office's decision only because they had to determine whether or not the office acted arbitrarily and capriciously. So that's kind of like, did they act so wrong that this is obviously, like, there's some sort of bias towards the plaintiff or something like that. Right. And and how'd they, how'd they come out on that one? Uh, they fully agreed with the Copyright Office that a mug with a few short phrases and a pictogram was not eligible for copyright protection. Right, because it lacked the kind of original content that would be necessary. Right. Okay, okay. So while you were at the copyright office, you did what I think is a really cool project that became ultimately part of the paper that we wrote together. And I was wondering if you could Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that project, sort of what the experience of, of doing it was like and what you learned. Uh, so um, after work, I would go home and sit at my desk and read all of the copyright review board letters about creativity that have been written. It was really interesting because you notice a pa- like patterns that become established. So I would do like 15 or 20 at a time, and I made a little chart, which is in our paper, and... I copied the all of the papers that had been written and added a new bracket that explains like this is why specifically copyright was usually it's denied but if it was granted why um, it was I mean it was fun I enjoyed looking at all the different examples I think 
it's interesting how some uh, it kind of goes towards the public's like interpretation of what copyright is because I think a lot of people are just like oh I get IP rights in something let me just file for copyright protection and you're just like did you even look at what copyright law is at all <laughs> just it was interesting getting to see like so many examples of the analysis that has to be done to determine whether or not something is eligible for copyright protection. Yeah. Maybe you could talk a little bit about like maybe some of the patterns that you you thought you saw or some of the kind of the common features among some of those letters. Yeah. There's a lot of like categories I noticed. So there are a lot of logos, like so many logos that companies, I guess, just decided, hey, we also need copyright protection in this. And a lot of those were not eligible because it, they were just comprised of like circles and lines and short phrases, and those things aren't really necessarily creative. There were also a lot of like a lot of pieces of jewelry that were also just comprised of standard like cuts of diamonds and things of that nature. One of the more interesting ones was someone tried to get copyright in like a line of code which felt like a like it's going to be a new thing that happens as companies want to protect the work they've done in designing software and developing software but overall the all of the letters have the same format it just is a matter of that analysis being developed and the best part was that you could find little jokes that the attorneys had clearly written like puns throughout them that was a great time (laughs) that's a copyright office they got to be creative yeah (laughs) so it sounds like from your description like in a way that the copyright office in general and the review board in in particular are kind of almost policing the boundaries of copyrightable subject matter to some degree like kind of looking at these new categories of works that kind of more aggressive registrants Mm -hmm. are trying to kind of claim broader subject matter and the copyright office is kind of (laughs) beating them back a little bit, as it were? Uh, I don't know about policing. Maybe, like, helping develop the boundaries. (laughs) Policing is just, like, a little aggressive. Okay, okay. Spoken, Spoken like a... Budding bureaucrat, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so N- Nicole, why don't we why don't we close it out with a little prediction, right? The Supreme Court is going to be is going to be hearing Fourth Estate v. WallStreet.com sometime in the coming term. There hasn't been an oral argument yet, so what do you think? How's it going to come out? I'm hoping that the Supreme Court will side with WallStreet.com, but you never know. <laughs> Um, I think because it's such a statutory-based question that it will most likely, they'll most likely agree with Wall Street, but I could be wrong. All right. Well, thanks so much, Nicole. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you. (laughs) 